Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Here in this episode, we are continuing our series in the life of Jacob with James Jordan. Here, Jordan's going to go topical, and he's going to talk about how Jacob's exodus from Laban is an actual exodus pattern that started back in Genesis and goes throughout the rest of the Bible. He'll discuss the parallels between Jacob leaving Laban and Israel leaving Egypt. He'll give a definition of what an exodus is and how it started in the early chapters of Genesis. And then he'll show how that pattern goes throughout the rest of the Bible and into the New Covenant as well. A couple of things before we jump into it, we did want to make you aware of our new website. If you head to theopolisinstitute.com, you'll find that our articles and media are much more accessible to you now. So we encourage you to go there, click around, and enjoy that content on Bible liturgy and culture. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan on the pattern of the Exodus in the Bible. Today, we come to Jacob's Exodus from Laban in chapter 31, verses 17 to 35, and in this hour, in this 45-minute session, we're going to introduce that by talking about the Exodus pattern one more time, because it's so pervasive in the Bible, and because, as you'll see if you even glance at these notes, and we'll see in a few minutes, there are a vast number of explicit parallels between Jacob's leaving Laban and Israel's leaving Egypt. Now, so many that we really want to at least take one session and look at them. And so, just to put a few words of Scripture before us before we start looking at this thematically, chapter 35, verses 17 and following say that after God had told Jacob to leave and his wives had said, yes, amen, do it, so Yaakov arose, he lifted his children and his wives onto the camels and led away his livestock and all his property that he had acquired. And he acquired livestock of his own acquiring that he had gained in the country of Aram to come home to Yitzchak his father in the land of Canaan. And Levon had gone to shear his flock and Rachel, meanwhile, stole the teraphim that belonged to her father. And Jacob, Yaakov, stole the wits of Levon the Aramean by not telling him he was about to flee. And flee he did. He and all that was his. And he arose and crossed the river, that's the Euphrates, setting his face toward the hill country of Gilad. We say Gilead. Gilad. So we crossed the river. We've been living between the rivers, and now we're going back. And the Euphrates is the boundary of the land of promise. And so, although crossing the river at this point isn't going to get him anywhere near home, yet in a conceptual way he's moved out of one world and into the new one. Now, this is an exodus, and it's part of the exodus pattern in the Bible. And I want us to just review this and think about it a little bit more, and then spend a few minutes looking at how this anticipates the exodus from Egypt, because I think it will give us a structure. I find it helpful when you see these structures and patterns in the Bible, they help me to remember things. It gives you a series of pegs to hang things on. So there'll be a bunch of pegs to hang things on in this. Exodus is a movement brought by God from an old place to a new place 
from a worse place to a better place. Now, the first two exoduses in the Bible don't have anything to do with sin and judgment. You're not leaving a situation of sin and judgment. You're just leaving a situation that is not as perfect as the new one. And the reason for that is that history is real and God moves along in history. So that at the end of the first day, the Spirit had done His work of making light and God saw that it was good. And then at the end of the second day, the Spirit has done His work of doing the firmament and God doesn't say it's good, but at midway through the third day, when the Spirit has also divided the land from the sea, God says it's good. Well, was it good at the end of the first day? Yeah. And at the end of the second day, it was better. And then on the sixth day, God says well, it's not good for the man to be alone, so he makes the woman, and then it's good. So, how good things is depends on when you are. And what's good yesterday may not still be good enough for today because everything grows and changes. God grows and changes things so that new occasions teach new duties and time makes ancient good uncouth. As Lowell wrote, he may have been a liberal, but in a sense that's true enough for what the Bible says. It's not that God's standards change, it's that he expects a bit more of us day by day. And that's in the Bible, in that God created Adam as a baby who was supposed to grow up to be an adult. He created him as a priest who was supposed to mature to becoming a king. He gave him the tree of life, but told him to wait on the tree of knowledge until he was mature enough for it. And these kinds of transitions then don't even necessarily have to do with sin. You can grow from being a child to an adult, and that's a transition. And there are a couple of exoduses that set the pattern for all the rest that take place in Genesis 1 and 2. The first one is God's lifting waters out of the earth into the heaven and putting a firmament in between them. And that, although you would never think, boy, that's an exodus, until you've looked at everything else in the Bible and look back at it and say, hmm, you know what? The way people are moved in an exodus is they get baptized. They wind up moving through waters, like the Euphrates here or the Red Sea. Baptism is our exodus out of the old and into the new world. Water is put on us, and it's water from above that makes us part of that above-water community. That's why I think it's important that water come from above. So it's heavenly water that we're put in union with, not that the person who is dipped is not baptized in the eyes of God. But biblical, symbolically, always in the Bible the water is above. The water in the labor of cleansing is off the ground. It represents the heavenly waters. All of these waters that are used in the Bible are sprinkled or poured or they're running downhill like a river and you're going through. That's putting you in union with that heavenly sea. And so anytime you're baptized, you're making an exodus from the waters below to the waters above. And then you can go back to Genesis 1 and say, okay, there's a pattern that God did right at the beginning. He didn't have to do it that way. He could have made the world originally with already waters, firmament, and waters below in place. But he chooses to go through this action here that then becomes the same kind of action that God keeps doing more and more as history goes along. So that's one thing that I have come to see connects in here. This lifting up of some waters into another place with a firmament area in between them, as we're going to see that firmament is analogous to the wilderness that people go through on their way to the new place. The second one is the exodus of Adam into the garden. You see, we're told in Genesis 2 that God made Adam, then God planted a garden, and then God put the man into the garden. So what was Adam doing while God was planting the garden? 
He's watching him do it. Because a child watches his father work and learns something. Of course, Adam's garden wouldn't grow up in five minutes the way God's did. But he's still, from some other place, observing his father work, learning from it, and then he is brought out of that place, wherever it is, into the garden. Where is the place that Adam was? Can you tell me anything about the place that Adam was at before he came into the garden? You can if you think about it. Well, it wasn't as plush, but what did God make Adam out of? Dust. So Adam moves from a dusty place into the garden. So Adam is in some place that's not a garden, and it's dusty, at least we have that word there, and he's moved into the garden. Now compare that to going from a wilderness into the promised land. And you can see that just in these very vague ways we're being set up, for this is how God does things. And you know, it's important for us to think about that because just going back to what I said before, I think that very often Christian teaching is done in such a way that it assumes that your life is the same when you're 50 as it is when you're 20. That we're the same when we're 40 as we are when we're 6. And that there are no changes in life. There are no transitions. But the Bible is full of these transitions from less mature to more mature, from less responsible to more responsible, and when you think about it, we know this, you're different before you're married than after you're married. But there's the pagan tendency in our mind to try to eternalize time and not live day by day by faith. If you can get rid of the messiness of having to live day by day, then you can live by sight. You can understand it. If you're living day by day, then things are changing around you. You can only live by faith. That's another lecture, but I'll tell you what, that's what philosophy is about. Philosophy is an attempt to live by sight, not by faith, and what that requires is getting rid of the fact that things constantly change. So philosophy is always about eternal things that never change. We're in a world that constantly changes. God doesn't. God is changing everything else, and that's where we live. Well, there are two exoduses. Now the third exodus is the flood. In the flood, we start to pick up some of the motifs that are carried on later on. For instance, one of the Exodus motifs is that when you depart from the old land, you leave with spoils. Well, that's exactly what Noah does. Noah spoils the old creation. He takes the animals and birds out of it. These are the creatures that will probably be in the resurrection and the ones that will be used in sacrifices. He doesn't need to take fish. But he departs with spoils. He uses the spoils to build a tabernacle in this sense that he has taken seven pair of all the clean animals and he offers them on an altar as soon as it's over. So the spoils that he brings with him are used to set up worship on the other side and at that time, as soon as you arrive out into the new world, a new covenant is made. So just compare that to the Exodus. We leave Egypt with spoil, we use that spoil to build a tabernacle and a new covenant is made. So, in these ways, there's an exodus here. And then the pattern extends on both sides of it. The old world is destroyed, and you have sons to carry on the covenant, and some of them sin and mess things up. Those are also part of the pattern that you find. So, there's an exodus. Now, the ones we're more familiar with, that we discussed before, Abram leaving Ur, to come to the land of Canaan. Remember that Abram leaves Ur and he moves to Haran. And he remains in Haran until the older generation dies off and then he moves into the land of Canaan. He comes there with his sheikdom. The place of Ur is a place of death. 
Abram's brother died in Ur. The place of Ur is a place where women are barren. We're told that Sarai couldn't have children in Ur. So you're leaving behind a place of death, a place of barrenness. You move into a wilderness area. You wait for the older generation to die off, and then you come into the promised land. There's an exodus. An exodus and an entrance. Then, in Genesis 12 and 13, Abram goes down into Egypt. Why? Because of a famine. While he's there, the bride is attacked. While he's there, deception is practiced against the tyrant. While he's there, he acquires a great deal of wealth. When things come to a crunch, the Pharaoh calls him in and accuses him and blames him. And then he comes out with a bunch of wealth and he moves to the Negev, which is the desert area in between Egypt and Canaan. And then he moves to Bethel. Chapter 13, verses 1 to 4, something like that, he moved to the Negev. And then a couple of verses later, he moved to Bethel, house of God. Well, there's a bunch of Exodus stuff there. All that stuff happens in the Exodus. Deceiving, midwives deceiving, gaining wealth. Pharaoh accuses Moses, this is all your fault. Attack on the bride, Pharaoh tries to keep the girl babies, kill the boy babies. All of those things. Then a famine. Well, not a famine, but the disaster at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Poisons the air of the land, and Abraham moves to Philistia. While he's there, there's an attack against his wife. There's a deception of the tyrant. He gains wealth. Abimelech accuses Abraham. God appears to Abimelech. That's a new thing that's added in here. God appears to Abimelech. God is going to appear to Laban here, too. Same situation. Abimelech accuses Abraham, but in the end, Abraham comes out with lots of good stuff. And in this occasion, Abimelech makes a covenant with him. So there's these twists. Then I think we can see Rebekah leaving Pat and Aram between the rivers to come to Beersheba. As an exodus, we saw that Rebekah is a new Abraham at that time. And while there's not any in-between place that she goes to and there's no spoils that she brings with her except herself, in a sense, she is the spoil. That transition there is an exodus that can fit in. And then we looked in great detail in Genesis 26 at Isaac. A famine sends Isaac to Philistia. And he stays there. And while he's there, well, nobody attacks his wife, but he does deceive Abimelech. And Abimelech says, hey, one of these guys might have raped your wife and it would have been your fault. Gee, here we are again. Potential danger to the wife. Accusing the righteous man. We saw that Isaac became exceedingly wealthy with all of his wells, and he just prospered and prospered. He leaves Philistia to go to Gerar, out in that area, and there's strife out there, and finally he moves to Beersheba. So there again, this pattern, going to the in-between place. Now we come to the two biggies. The biggie of the individual Israelite, the individual Israelite, Jacob, and then of the corporate Israel out of Egypt. First the head and then the body. First Jesus and then us. First Jacob and then Israel. Jacob's name has changed to Israel. First Jacob as himself, pretty much as himself, and then his little family with him goes through this. And then the biggie for the whole nation follows their father, follows their fountain, their head, in going through. You know that the word head in the Bible also means beginning. First word in the Bible is what? 
Bereshit, Rosh, head. At the head of things, God created the heavens and the earth. When the Bible says that Jesus is the head and we're the body, that means as much that he goes first and we follow as it does that he's in charge and we obey. The beginning of the year is called the head of the year. We have it in English. What do you call the beginning of a river? The headwater. Yeah, the head. So that's definitely there in Hebrew. So the head goes first and then the body follows. And that's what we're going to look at here. And in Jacob's case, we leave from Paddan Aram to Shechem and then to Bethel. And the sojourn at Shechem, which is where the rape of Dinah takes place, that's the in-between place. God appears to him in the vision that we saw last week and says, I'm the God of Bethel, come back to Bethel. Well, before he gets to Bethel, he sojourns in Shechem. In this in-between place, bad things happen there. Sons commit sins and are set aside. And then from Egypt to wilderness to Canaan, is the Moses story. So now let's look at some parallels. I think you'll be amazed at just how many parallels there are. First of all, in these Exodi, Jacob leaves home to get a wife. Joseph leaves home to look for his brothers. Jacob has been made the covenant representative, thanks to Rebekah and Isaac acceding to it. And then he's sent out for a wife. Joseph has been given the coat of many colors. He's the covenant representative of some sort. And he's sent out to look for his brothers. I might say, well, that's not a whole lot of parallel until you start to see other parts of the pattern. Because when Jacob leaves on his way to Bethel, God meets with him and talks to him and tells him things. What happens to Joseph on the way to find his brothers? A man meets him and tells him his brothers have gone to Dothan. I know you've read this story before in Genesis 37, and you probably wondered, why is this here? Why didn't it say he just went to look for his brothers and he found them in Dothan? But there's this story inserted in here that doesn't seem to connect to anything. Might as well just read it real quick. Where it says, <laughs> his brothers went to tend their father's sheep in Shechem. Well, here we are, and back in Shechem will start to take up this motif, this wilderness in between place idea. And as a matter of fact, as we'll see, the rape of Dinah takes place after Joseph has been taken into Egypt. And so that's why we're still at Shechem at this point, but we'll get to that later on. When Joseph is sold into Egypt at 17, Dinah has to be about 11 years old at the oldest. So that's too young. At any rate, so he says, go look for him and bring me back word. And he sent him out from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man came upon him. Behold, he was roaming in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What do you seek? And he said, I seek my brothers. Pray tell me where they're tending sheep. And the man said, They have moved on from here. Indeed, I heard him say, Let's go to Dothan. Yosef went after his brothers and came upon them in Dothan. Now, there's a couple of things here. One is, I'm looking for my brothers. Anticipates the rest of this story, where Joseph saves his brothers. But here's this whole thing here. No man comes to him, tells him stuff. Now you notice that this is parallel to Yahweh meeting Jacob at Bethel. Does God ever meet Joseph anywhere and talk to him? No. When we get to Joseph, there are no theophanies. Joseph has dreams and he interprets dreams, but there's no story where Yahweh spoke to Joseph. Why? Because Joseph is in a more mature situation. 
He's not going to live by God telling them things. He's going to live by what he knows already happened. It's just like us. God has never appeared to you and told you anything. You have the Bible. God never appears to Joseph and tells him anything. Joseph has the Bible. Joseph has all the stuff that was said to Abraham and Jacob. That's his Bible. Now he's supposed to live by that Bible without God appearing to him and telling new things. Just like us. No, that's part of this historical progression here. So, God meets Jacob, and here in this story, a man meets Joseph. Now, maybe this was the angel of the Lord, we don't know, but it's in the same slot. Well, Jacob gets there, he's well-received for a month. When Joseph gets there, he's well-received, and he prospers in Potiphar's house for a number of years. But then Jacob is reduced to servitude, as we saw after a month. Laban says, hey, I don't really think we ought to be having this such a cordial relationship. Let me make you into a hired man. And he takes advantage of him. Joseph is cast into prison. So there's a decline of fortune. Jacob prospers as a hired man. Joseph is elevated over Egypt. But he's under Pharaoh. Jacob is doing well, but he's under Laban. That's the next thing that happens. Jacob multiplies children and flocks. Hebrews multiply in Egypt. Laban turns against Jacob. Pharaoh turns against the Hebrews. Jacob deceives Laban to get the flocks. We saw it's not quite a deception, but there's jockeying around. The midwives lie to Pharaoh to protect the children. And in fact, this business of Laban changing the wages on and off, you notice in Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh keeps trying different things to deal with the Hebrews and coming around it. The midwives lie. He tries to kill the babies and people hide them. Even his own daughter hides them. So, there are deceptions going on to deal with the tyrant. Laban attacks his daughters, treating them as slaves. We saw that last week. His daughters are reduced to be the status of slaves. Pharaoh seeks to keep the girl babies for his men. So there's the attack on the bride thing. Laban is decapitalized. Egypt is ruined by plagues. Egypt is decapitalized. Yahweh appears to Jacob and tells him to leave. We looked at that last week. Yahweh appears to Moses and tells him to lead the people out. But once again, God is speaking to people. And he's speaking as the name Yahweh. And he tells them to go. Rachel steals Laban's God. This is spoiling the Egyptians. At the same time that Jacob liberates Laban's flocks. Now, and Hebrews spoil the Egyptians. Now remember what it says in Exodus is, I will move in the people and they will give you things when you ask for them. What happens here? God miraculously snatches, remember our word from last week, he snatches Laban's sheep and goats and gives them to Jacob. He rescues them. He saw that that was rescuing. That's what the word means. He rescues all the sheep and goats from Laban. And he liberates them. And meanwhile, Rachel steals these gods, which doubtless had some silver and other precious things associated with them. We are doing something specific, which we'll return to in a second. Well, of course, Laban pursues after Jacob. Pharaoh pursues after the Hebrews. God appears to Laban and warns him. Now, that's the same position as God appearing to Abimelech and warning him we saw earlier. Well, God had already warned Pharaoh through Moses, but the warnings are still there. You get these warnings and you get them from God. Laban blames Jacob. We'll see this next time. This is all your fault. You did this, you did that. And Pharaoh blames Moses. He says, this is all your fault. 
You stirred these people up. Laban's gods are humiliating. Being sat on by a menstruating woman is pretty humiliating if you're a god. And the gods of Egypt are humiliating. So that's parallel. A pile of stones is going to be put between Jacob and Laban. A boundary between the two. A standing pillar and stones. Mizpah. Lord, watch between me and you when we're hidden from one another. That's not a real positive statement. But it's a boundary. Well, remember when the Israelites came out of Egypt, that God's pillar moved between Pharaoh's army and the Israelites before they crossed the Red Sea, separating them. That's parallel. Jacob encounters angels as he leaves. See that? They've forgotten that one. But in 32, as Jacob went on his way, angels of God encountered him. Jacob said when he saw them, this is a camp of God. This is very similar to the ladder to heaven. Well, this is the house of God. I see all these angels. Now he sees a bunch of angels and he says, not a house, but an army camp, which is an assurance to him. He's about to meet Esau and he sees that there's an army camp of angels out there with him. If you're going to go meet Esau, it's nice to have a bunch of angels on your side and to be assured that that's the fact. Well, Israel, as they come out, encounters the pillar, which is the angel of Yahweh. This is before they get to Mount Sinai. The pillar appears and guides them and protects them and gives them assurance. Well, Jacob faces Esau and Israel faces Amalek. You may remember that the Malachites were descendants of Esau. Now, in the case of Esau, Jacob prays before he meets him. The angels have appeared to him. Jacob says, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Yitzchak, O Yahweh, who said to me, Return to your land. I am too small for all the faithfulness that you have shown to me. Please save me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esav, for I am in fear of him. But you, you said I will deal well with you. And then that's followed by wrestling with God at Peniel, which tells you that that wrestling is all a symbol of prayer, because he's facing Esau. We'll get to that shortly in our studies. But when we face Amalek in the wilderness, how do we win that battle? Moses had to keep his hands up, right? That's also an image of prayer. When they got tired, then Aaron and Hur sat next to him and held his arms up. So the battle is won by prayer. Now in Esau's case, Esau has been bought off by gifts. Amalek isn't bought off by gifts. They have to be defeated. But it occupies the same position in the story. And back when we were looking in the book of Revelation, we saw that whenever you come out of Egypt, it is a normal part of the Exodus pattern that you encounter Amalek. You think, boy, this is great. I finally got out of Egypt and then God throws a test. It happens here with Jacob. It happens with Israel. It happens in the book of Samuel. Uh, as we'll see, God returning from Philistia with all these golden mice and golden emeralds. That's an exodus. They finally get a king. They feel real good about it. What's more, the first thing that happens? Battle against Amalek. There Saul spares a king of the Amalekites. What happens after the exile? After the exile, oh boy, we got an exodus and Cyrus lets us all go home and Darius is letting us build a temple. Then what happens? Haman the Agagite, an Amalekite, descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites. Therefore, he's Esau and he attacks. So this is a pattern. You think you've finally gotten away from Egypt and you're coming into the promised land. And wait a minute, it's, uh, it's useful to remember that. 
but it's probably the case that we would never remember it if we came into a parallel situation because it would be sufficiently different where we would make the connection. But you could look back on it and say, you know, that's what happened here. I was delivered from one thing and then I was tested right away with another. Well, anyway, that's what's happened here. A direct parallel. And Israel, if they could, could look back, you see, at the Jacob story and learn something. That's why these things happen over and over again. When they come in the wilderness and encounter Amalek, they could think back to Jacob encountering Esau that the angels were with him. They could know that because it had happened before. Well, we go on. Jacob encounters God at Peniel. Israel encounters God at Mount Sinai. These are both highly climactic events. Jacob's sons behave horribly at Shechem is the next thing that happens. After Peniel, we kind of meet with Esau again, and Esau leaves them alone. And then we have the Shechem story, which jumps us well down in time, but still that's what is recorded next. And the rape of Dinah and the abuse of the covenant by Simeon and Levi, Israel behaves horribly in the wilderness over and over and over again. But this story is set right here before we get to Bethel and after we have left Pataneram, in the halfway place, in the in-between place, in the firmament between the water, and that's where the sin takes place, and judgment comes as a result. Israel should have known that. Now let me remind you, I think we've done this before, but I want to make sure that you understand it. We are leaving. Waters below to go to waters above, and in between we pass through the firmament, which is the wilderness. What's out here in this wilderness? What is out here in the wilderness is Bethel, Peniel, Sinai, in the story of Elijah, which is also an exodus. Elijah goes out to this place and he comes back in and conquers the land, Horeb or Sinai. When you leave the old world to go to the new world, you go out into an in-between place and God is there. And you spend some time with God, and that's where there's a real danger of committing a big sin. And if you do, like Israel, you're stuck here. If you do like Simeon and Levi, you're stuck here. This whole place here is wilderness or Shechem or the firmament area before you get into the promised land, which is higher up, the place where there's waters again. You see, there's all these waters in Egypt. I mean, the Bible calls attention to it. The Nile has turned to blood. Moses is put in an ark, and it's the same word as the ark of Noah. The only two places in the Bible this word is used. The ark of the covenant is a completely different word. With a little ark of Moses, it says she pitched it, put pitch on it. Just like the ark of Noah. It's water city here in Egypt. Water, water everywhere. And then what is this land? The land that flows with milk and honey, where there's the Jordan River. There's water all over here. But what about out here? There isn't any water. The water is poison, so at Meribah they have to clean it. There isn't any water, so at Meribah they have to make water. This is the firmament in between the waters. And the firmament is where you encounter God. And as we said before, the tabernacle and the temple are little portable firmaments because the altar in the midst of that forecourt is a replica of this firmament wilderness area. And when you sin, then you leave your home and you go into this wilderness area where the altar is and you renew covenant with God and then you come back out into a new world. So what happens here? We have left the week behind, which is turned into Egypt. And now we're here, a little separate time with God for the next hour or so. And then we're sent out 
made new people into a new situation. That's what's happening. And that's what happened to Shechem, boy. At Shechem, in the in-between place, before we've come into the fullness of the promised land, back to Bethel, the house of God, which is what this place is, the higher land. Well, there's a great sin. And the same thing happens in the wilderness. Well, now, it's interesting, and we'll see this as we get to it, but <laughs> when we get to Bethel, as we start to head to Bethel, in 35 verse 5, they moved on, a terror from God lay upon the towns that were around them. Well, you remember that's exactly what happens at the Exodus, where Rahab says, we thought you guys were going to conquer us 38 years ago. This great terror came upon us. God gives the whole land to Jacob right after that. God appears to him in chapter 35 and said, Jacob is your name. Jacob shall be your name no more. Your name will be Israel. You call his name Israel. I am God Shaddai. Bear fruit and be many nations. Yes, the host of nations will come from you. Kings will come from your loins. This land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, to you I give it. So God gives the whole land to Jacob. God gives the whole land to Israel when they come into it. Jacob, having spent time at Bethel now, he moves to Ephrath. Or Ephrath, as it says here. And there at Ephrath, Rachel dies. Well now, Ephrath is also known as what? Bethlehem. Now after we came into the promised land, after Joshua, after we're given the land. What happens at the end of the book of Judges? Well, you don't remember this, but the next to the last story in the book of Judges tells us that there was a Levite from Bethlehem who decided to go and worship false gods, and he gets involved with some Danites, and they go off and they set up a fake shrine, and they have a fake exodus, and they have a fake conquest of some peaceful people, and they set up their counterfeit worship with their counterfeit idols, and this Levite from Bethlehem becomes their priest. And then the last story in Judges is a Levite from Bethlehem whose concubine is murdered by the men of Gibeah of the tribe of Benjamin. We have a situation associated with Bethlehem where a woman dies. And then the next Bethlehem story is in the book of Ruth. Bethlehem is a really sorry place. It produces the one Levite who can't wait to apostatize, another one who is not willing to give his life for his bride, he just throws her out and lets her get raped all night long until she's dead. He does not die for her. That's his failure. And then the third story is in Ruth. It says there's this big famine in the land of Bethlehem, which means house of bread. So there's a famine in the house of bread, and that's what causes Elimelech, Naomi, Marlon, and Kilian to leave and go to the land of Moab. But Bethlehem is a really pretty sick place. Bethlehem and Gibeah. Gibeah is where this rape took place. Gibeah and Bethlehem are both hell. And Saul comes from Gibeah and David comes from Bethlehem. This is all very important symbolism in a later story. Now, of course, the book of Ruth shows the redemption of Bethlehem. When they come back to Bethlehem, Boaz is there and everything has changed. Boaz is David and when David becomes king, everything changes. But Bethlehem starts to take up this meaning of being a real horrible place where people die and where there's bad things happening, and it's here. And it occupies the same place in the pattern. We come into the land, now we come to Bethlehem and Rachel dies. We come into the land, we get to Bethlehem, and this woman is raped to death. And parallel to this, we also read right after that, Reuben went into Bilhah's father's concubine, placed the harlot. Israel placed the harlot in the days after the death of Joshua and the men of that generation. In other words, we're in the book of Judges now. We're already anticipating the book of Judges. 
spiritual harlotry, which is the language used in Judges repeatedly and comes to its climax with the story of Samson. Then the story shifts to Joseph. That's the end of that one cycle. And now we come to Joseph. And we could just go right back to the beginning here and say, okay, Joseph, he's the one who's set apart. And then he goes to look for his brothers. And then he meets a man instead of God. And then he goes into the situation. A new Exodus pattern begins. Well, what happens after the book of Judges? Well, a new pattern starts. The story shifts to Samuel, and a new Exodus pattern begins, and this time it's God who goes into captivity. We're moving more and more to seeing Jesus, and this time it's the ark who goes into captivity. The ark goes into captivity into Philistia. The ark defeats the Philistine gods. The plagues fall on the Philistines. The bubonic plague, some variant of it, falls on the Philistines. You remember all this. The ark is sent back laden with golden spoil, golden rats and golden buboes. For two generations, the ark abides in the wilderness of the house of Benadab on the hill before David moves it to Jerusalem. That wilderness period, Saul is in charge. Samuel's in charge and then Saul is in charge. What happened when we were in the wilderness out of Egypt? We rebelled against God and we were stuck there. What happens under Samuel's rule while we're in the wilderness and the ark is at the house of Abinadab on the hill? They rebelled against God and demanded to have a king like the other nations. Before God was ready to give him a king, God had David there and he was planning for him to have a king. It's not true he never intended for him to have a king. The law says you will have a king someday. They jumped the gun. They insisted on Saul. And so, they wound up staying in this wilderness situation for a whole generation and waiting. And the ark stayed there. There wasn't any tabernacle in the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem was not conquered. And how did they know that Jerusalem was to be the capital? How did they know that they could not build a temple and have a capital city until they had conquered Jerusalem, that Jerusalem was supposed to be the capital? You should know this. Abraham gave his tithes to Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the king of that area and the king in Jerusalem. And by his fealty to Melchizedek, Abraham is giving a sign, this is the place. We are not explicitly told that in the Bible. But all of a sudden, everybody says, we got to have Jerusalem, we got to have Jerusalem. In fact, in the book of Judges, the first city they take is Jerusalem. I think it is. I should know. At any rate... We're stuck in the wilderness here with Saul until David comes along. And during the time that we're in the wilderness, God kills all these rebellious people. And what happened while the ark was in the house of Abinadab on the hill? Guys peeked into the ark and God killed them. They pulled those covers back to have a look and God killed them. The ark continued to kill people until David took it up to Jerusalem and he did it in a sinful way. So God killed Uzzah when he tried to steady the ark because the ark was on a cart which it was never supposed to be on. What happened when they got to Mount Sinai? What did God say? If anybody even touches the mountain, he's to be killed. You cannot see my face and live. So here we are in this wilderness situation. The ark is not yet in Jerusalem, but it's left behind the old tabernacle. It's out here in this guy's house, wherever it is. And people are being killed for the same sin 
as people are being killed for in the wilderness. So you see the patterns there again. And if you start to look at this in the book of Samuel and Kings, it becomes a real big thing. It happens again. We've had it happen with the patriarchs. We've had it happen with Israel as a nation of priests. Then it happens again in Samuel and Kings with Israel as a nation of kings. Then it happens again after the exile out of Babylon with Israel as a nation of prophets. And then what did Jesus say on the Mount of Transfiguration? I have an exodus to accomplish. And so it all pulls the gown together again and Jesus does it all in his journey to Jerusalem. And you look at Luke, you find Jesus makes this big journey to Jerusalem and there's an exodus out of Israel and into this place where he encounters God and then he comes back. And then in the book of Acts, the church makes an exodus. They're driven out of Jerusalem, pursued by Jews and Judaizers, harvesting and spoiling the old creation as Paul brings all these people into the church. So this is a major theme in the Bible and just wanted to show you how many parallels there are in the first two of them here. Jacob and then the nation of Israel which goes through the same pattern. That's it. Anybody want to tell us why David thought he could get by with putting the ark on a cart and taking it up to Jerusalem that way? This is another good Bible question. But that's what the Philistines did when they sent the ark back. They put it on a cart and they had cows and the cows made a beeline to Israel. And so David decides, well, I don't really need to follow the Levitical rules and carry the ark on the shoulders of Levites. I'll put it on a cart and the oxen will carry it to Jerusalem. And what do we read? The oxen were stumbling. They're not cooperating with it this time. <laughs> and it starts to fall off and Uzzah grabs it. And so David stops it right there and then uh, <laughs> later on brings it up the right way. You can't use those Philistine methods. <laughs> Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.